This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, housing insecurity has increased over the last few years, with over 580,000 Americans having experienced homelessness for at least one night in 2020. Some groups are particularly high risk, like people of color and veterans, and the problem is made worse by weather disasters from climate change. The Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, is tackling housing insecurity in the U.S. With help from the new funding from the American Rescue Plan Act, HUD is ramping up its efforts to end homelessness in America. Today we speak with Deputy Secretary of HUD, Adrian Todman, who has made it her mission to house those without homes and to strengthen communities through housing. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The government has a responsibility to confront housing insecurity, ensure access to homes, and eliminate housing discrimination. Strengthening the lives of both individuals and communities through access to housing is essential. That's according to Adrienne Todman. She's the Deputy Secretary of, De- of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. All right, so let's talk about homelessness. Um, the latest numbers we have are from HUD's 2020 report. And there are over 580,000 Americans who have experienced at least one night of homelessness in, in 2020. That's up from 2019, 2.2%. Why is that number increasing? No, thank you for that question. You know, and it's a really critical one and important to HUD. You know, our mission is is very broad, and and we help families who are experiencing homelessness, and we help families who are uh, graduating all the way up to home home ownership. Um, What we found is happening inside of the homelessness space is many families are really being impacted by the current um, economic environment. And, And the idea of a homeless person is different than what we probably thought it was years ago. We have teachers, sadly, who, um, who cannot afford uh, their neighborhoods and are living in their cars. Um, we have moms with their children who may have been evicted and are trying to find a safe place to be. So we find that there's a number of different reasons that individuals and families are entering the homeless shelter system. And what HUD is doing is working with our local partners to do everything we can to provide housing so these homeless individuals can enter apartments. And how has the pandemic impacted the homeless uh, community and increasing those numbers? Thank you. So, you know, our 2021 report will be coming out shortly. And we are we will see that the pandemic had an impact, both in terms of the count, but also in terms of what's happening with families. What we saw was during the pandemic, a lot of people lost their jobs. Um, a lot of folks in the service industry, we know a lot of folks were concerned about evictions. A lot of folks were concerned about losing their homes. Um, and I will say I'm very proud of the fact that the federal government apparatus did everything that we could do and continue to to keep families inside of their homes. So what we're hoping to see when the point in time count happens this year is some of those measures worked. We worked with Department of Treasury in terms of folks who are renters and um, deploying our rental assistance funds. And, you know, HUD has a fair amount of, of homeowners who rely on HUD for their mortgage insurance. And we did everything we could to work with servicers to make sure those families did not default and also 
stayed in their homes. Now, what about the funds from the American Rescue Plan? How were how was that used? And what impact have you been seeing from that, from those funds? Sure. So the President's American Rescue Plan afforded us the opportunity to help get tens of thousands of people um, into apartments. And we are using a program that's called the Emergency Housing Voucher Program. And we are working with two of our local partners, our housing authorities, but also our continuums of care, which are generally nonprofits who identify the most vulnerable homeless to be housed. So that money was deployed mid last year and we're pleased right now to see that people are being leased up and entering their apartments. There's much more work to be done, of course, but we're really pleased to see the emergency housing vouchers doing their job. So the numbers from 2020 indicate that veteran homelessness did not go down from 2019. Why is that and how are you working with the VA to address that problem? Right. Veterans Affairs is one of our strongest partners in helping decrease homelessness across the country, specifically with our veteran uh, neighbors. And that program is targeted toward veterans who are homeless, but also in need of some services to make sure that they're living with integrity. Um, you know, one of the things we're really proud of is through that partnership with the VA, we have been able to decrease veterans homelessness by more than 50% over the past 10 years. Of course, there's always room for improvement, and we are working very closely with the Secretary McDonough and his team to make that happen. In fact, Secretary McDonough and Secretary Fudge are the co-chairs of an interagency council on homelessness, and one of our target populations are our veterans. I mean, if you've served your country, all right, the least that we can do is make sure you have a shelter over your head, and we're working very closely with the VA. There's something called the HUD-VASH program. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that and how is that managed? Certainly. The VASH is a, is a jewel of a program, and it, we work very closely with, again, as I said, the VA and their medical centers. And how that program works is that it's really a localized program. HUD provides funding to local housing authorities, and the VA medical centers provide the names of veterans who need to be housed, and also provide wraparound services to those veterans. I mean, we know sometimes everybody needs a little bit of help. And so with HUD providing the housing through its local partners and the VA providing services, we've been able to help just thousands and thousands of veterans across the country, and we continue to. The, uh, you know, people of color are significantly overrepresented among the homeless population. What are you doing at HUD to address that specifically? Absolutely. You know, Tackling homelessness is also tackling racial injustice. Um, we know that many of our brothers and sisters on the street are people of color. And we've been very intentional in terms of how we are looking at our program design, particularly as we're looking at future funds. We want to make sure that those vouchers and our housing opportunities are going to people of color and other folks who, is, who have the highest need. Coming next, we continue speaking with Adrian Todman about HUD's plans to address homelessness and climate change threats. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm with Adrian Todman. She's the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban, Urban Development. Adrian, we're talking about homelessness and I want to talk to you about uh, foster care children yes. because as they age out, when they turn 18, all of a sudden they're completely cut off and a lot of them end up homeless. What are you doing about that? 
You know, and you know, this is a great question for a tough issue. Imagine being 18, 19, 20, 21 years old and being told, you know, guess what? You have to leave your home. You have to find a new home. You have to find a way to support yourself. I mean, I know several of us at that age would not be able to do that. And so HUD, again, working with our local partners, created a new program called Foster Youth to Independence. Um, and what we are doing is working with our local um, communities and saying, please identify some of these young adults that need a little help just getting started. We don't want to have young adults on the street as they begin to really thrive and, 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 and when it's supposed to be some of the most critical years of their life. Um, so we have a voucher program and we delivered about $14 million to localities just last year. A voucher program that will be provided to foster youth as identified by local by local agencies um, and they're able to pr get rental assistance to find an apartment and then we partner with other local nonprofits to make sure that they have furniture to make sure that they have um, opportunities for job development um, I mean, this is the right thing to do and I can't think of any better way for us to spend our resources than helping young people get a leg up. Because when they don't have some place to stay, they can't be in school, they can't have a job. Absolutely. It just spirals. Absolutely. Well, so it's, it's one thing to get people into a home, it's another to sustain them and keep them housed. Mm -hmm. What about that issue? Yeah, you know, this is something that I've, I've been working on also throughout my life and happy to be able to do it as um, HUD's Deputy Secretary. You're absolutely right. We can get families into a home, but it is almost as critical to get families uh, to have a, a successful tenancy, to be able to stay in their units. And we do that a number of ways. Um, working with both public and private landlords, we try to identify those families that need some help. Um, HUD does not necessarily deploy some of those funds. Uh, we do have a new eviction prevention program, um, which takes a different tactic to keep in families housed. But in terms of trying to um, identify issues before they become a real issue. We really, really rely on our partners at HHS. We rely on some of our partners at the local government leadership and nonprofits to do that. In fact, um, not too long ago, HUD and HHS partnered up and created a new portal which is providing information not just about housing resources, but also about human service resources that HHS deploys. I think it's a great partnership. What about housing discrimination? Uh, what programs do you have in place for that problem? So the Fair Housing Act is the law of the land. And our Secretary Fudge has made it clear that our enforcement of that act will not be passive. And it will it'll be intentional and it will be active. And there are a number of different things that we've been doing under her leadership. Um, HUD inspired the concept of taking a look at appraisal bias. And we saw that if you are in a neighborhood that's predominantly people of color, homes are appraised at 20% less than when it is a home in a white neighborhood. And this administration said, we can't have that. We've got to do something about it. So Secretary Fudge, along with Ambassador Rice, who is the chair of the Domestic Policy Council, are the co-chairs of an appraisal task force to take a look at this issue. 
to understand how deep this problem goes, to look at perhaps some of the generational wealth that has been lost, to see if there's enforcement we need to do and some customer education. So we're looking forward to putting out a report early this year. So what, what recourse does someone have if they feel like they've been discriminated against in the housing sector? Well, certainly go to HUD's website, HUD.gov. Um, we have a, a, a portal way for you to explain to us what, what happened or to share your story. Um, we, in addition to HUD, taking a look at cases. We also have the FIP and FAP, it's so, it's so HUD geek, but the FIP and FAP programs, which we provide funds to nonprofits and local governments to also uh, pursue where there's been discrimination. But certainly go to our, our website. And tell me a little bit more about how HUD works with the private, um, private homeowners and the public housing system, and how does that all work together? Sure. Um, so generally, um, what HUD will do is, you know, we we are the enforcer, but we also provide funds to make sure that other entities can help get the right thing done. Um, and we're also a compliance entity, but we rely on our partners. You know, we're only as good as our our local governments, our housing agencies, our state partners. And so, when it comes specifically to fair housing claims, um, we will first uh, defer to our local partners to pursue those cases, but HUD has its own investigators as well, and we get that job done. I want to ask you about environmental justice. Mm -hmm. It's a big priority for the Biden White House. Explain what that is first. Certainly. So we're very proud that just last November, HUD released its climate action plan as part of COP26. And our plan takes a look at our work in climate change space in three different areas. One, you know, doing our part to try to make sure that we are slowing down the warming of the earth, given greenhouse emissions. Uh, second, you know, we are seeing the impact of the damage that's been done so far. We're seeing uh, climate changes and we're seeing uh, uh, disasters in areas and times of the year that are, you know, unusual. We're seeing the frequency and severity of hurricanes in a way that we have not. We're seeing tornadoes, times of the year that they typically don't happen. And so the second part of our climate action plan really focuses in how do we build in resilient way and a sustainable way after a disaster has occurred. And we work very closely with our partners at FEMA. The third is on environmental justice. We know that when these disasters strike, it is disproportionately hurting people of color, either because they, they can't leave, they have no place to go, the resources by which to leave. And, and many times we see renters are the folks who are you know, the ones most impacted in terms of having a place to live. And so we want to make sure that our disaster recovery work is focused on folks who have high need, but we also want to make sure that if we are going to build a greener economy and a better, more resilient place for our kids and grandkids, and there's uh, new jobs available, that those jobs are available to people who need it as well. Okay, well, I want to ask you a little bit more about that sure. after a quick pause. Great, thank you. Coming next, we continue speaking with Adrian Todman about HUD's plans to combat housing insecurity and climate change. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm with Adrienne Todman. She's the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. 
Adrian, uh, we were talking about environmental justice, and I wonder if you could give me an example of you know, a community, uh, a disadvantaged community that has been disproportionately affected by the effects of climate. Sure, absolutely. Um, I'll give you two examples. Um, so I was recently in New Jersey visiting with some of our um, public housing residents, um, um, I won't name the town, but uh, uh, who were impacted by Hurricane Ida. And um, it was very sad to see how concerned they were about not just the fact that they were displaced, but that they were really afraid of coming back. And they kept saying to me, you know, Ms. Hardman, is there gonna be another flood? Are we gonna to have to be displaced again? And so, you know, one of the things that we have a responsibility to do um, is to, when we do have these natural disasters that occur, is to build back um, in the right way, in a smart way, and to really do as much as we can to to just squash the fears of some of the, the, the low-income residents who are most impacted. And, and some of them are still trying to find another place to live beyond the hotel that they're in. Another example, um, which was an impact of Hurricane Ida as well, was there are, was a, a Native American tribe um, in Louisiana um, whose home was completely um, underwater for some time. And, and we've been working very closely mostly with the state um, and with the town that abuts the, 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 the tribe's land um, to help them find some place to live. So you can see that these are you know, two populations, um, uh, low income, living in areas that were disproportionately impacted and hard working with FEMA and, other, and others are trying to make sure that they're okay. There was, of course, the deadly tornadoes across Kentucky yes. and the neighboring states. Um, it left many people homeless. Um, HUD is involved in helping those people find homes. What progress have you made so far? Sure. Well, well, certainly FEMA is always first in, and they make sure that areas are receiving the immediate um, um, uh, recovery need that they have. HUD receives funding through something called the CDBG Disaster Recovery Funds. And when we receive those funds, we work with the localities on a housing plan. But we also work with FEMA prior to receiving those funds to help some of the individuals and families who are impacted to find new homes. And we're very fortunate to have a number of local partners, again, our housing agencies, that provide vouchers, that provide access to public housing units and other assisted units for individuals who can't afford to, you know, just go at it on their own. And, um, and when we do receive our disaster recovery funds, we work in concert um, with the localities and the states to make sure that when they are building back, that they are building back in a more resilient way. There was, of course, the wildfires in Colorado recently. Mm -hmm. Are you working in that area? And, and helping those people that have lost their homes. Yeah. So we, um, you know, our, our HUD team was on the ground right after um, those wildfires occurred and it was terrible. And we um, spoke with the FEMA administrator. We also are being uh, participating on a housing task force uh, to, ma to make sure that we're providing all of the intelligence and wisdom we have um, in, in terms of helping families who are really in a, in a restricted market given the high cost of housing that's there. We're also in Kentucky uh, with the tornadoes that happened. And there, we did have a couple sites that were destroyed by the tornadoes, and we are also working with the families there to get them rehoused. And so, you know, differs, I, I always say to the team, recovering after a disaster is a marathon sometimes. Um, we know we need to treat families with respect and with dignity, and we need to do everything we can, and all the government approach, actually, to make sure that communities come back in a better way. Well, speaking of all government, you, you mentioned so many different agencies 
that you're working with. How are you coordinating across so many agencies and so many initiatives? Right. You know, um, it's the love of the work, right? It's, it's the love of governance. And so we have very strong partnerships, like I mentioned with HHS. We work, you know, lock and step every day with our friends and the VA on our housing voucher program. We work very closely with Treasury. When Treasury received um, uh, billions of dollars to deploy to receive rental assistance, they leaned on HUD and our expertise to help them get those programs formatted. And we're also providing technical assistance at their behest for communities that need that help. So, you know, thankfully we have an amazing 7,500 uh, labor force at HUD and we continue to work with our government agency partners every day. I just want to ask you personally, because you were born and raised in the U.S. Virgin Islands, why a career in public service? What brought you to D.C. when you have such nice beaches over there? <laughs> we do, we do, and if you've not been there, go. Um, you know, that's a, when, I, when I first went to college, I thought I was going to be a psychology major, and I took, like, probably Gov 101 or American government, one of these classes, and I realized, wow, this is, this is fascinating. But even more than that, I took my first trip to Washington, D.C. as an 11th grader in high school and caught what they say is Potomac fever um, and knew I had to be here. And so went off to college, came back to Washington, D.C., and never looked back. I mean, public service is an honor and a privilege, and um, I just relish being able to help people. Well, we appreciate your service and we appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mimi. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to 
um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.